All right, uh, so we're in John 18. If you have a Bible, you can open up to John 18. If you don't, uh, some of the ushers will carry down a stack of those books. You just raise your hand, they'll give you one. And you're welcome to keep it if you don't have one. John 18. And typically what we do is, uh, we're not going to do it right now, so stand down. But in a moment, I'll have you stand for the reading. I'll have you stand for the reading of the word, but not right now. We're going to get everybody situated here. Well done. See, initiative. I like that, sweetie. You went and got one. Smart, right there. See, I want to live long enough to see her become president. All set. All right. Uh, So, um, Michelle and I got back last night from uh, uh, Naples, Florida. We were there for the Council on National Policy, and it was a, a wonderful trip. Had a chance to I hear James O'Keefe speak, and uh, Newt Gingrich, and Mike Huckabee, and uh, Senator uh, Josh Hawley. Thanks, babe. I brought Michelle with me so I could remember. And then uh, one of the cool ones, I, I, I don't know if we have it, but uh, I had a chance to meet this guy. Do we have the picture? Yeah, click it. And I wanted him to feel good, so I stuck my stomach out um, while... <laughs> While he was in the picture. So, all right. I'm, I'm literally sticking out just so he feels better. I'm, I do have a washboard stomach. I just have laundry on it. So, I met a boxer back there, Wes. The guy's ripped, and I'm like, that's not fair. He works hard, though. Uh, okay, so uh, I had a chance to do that, and then... You know, we, we, we heard about some of the situations facing the country, and, and quite honestly, um, it's, it's concerning. And uh, a lot of people can define the problem, but nobody's really working on a solution. And that's even troubling. That's all right. I went through this second service. You help her, because she's going to freak out, and, and everyone's going to, yeah. It was actually, it's, yeah, it's okay. Don't panic. It's all right. Just slow down. Better now than when I get to the call for Christ and, yeah. So uh, we, were, we were flying back after the trip, and uh, typically I pray and ask God to kind of put me next to somebody while I'm flying, and we had terrible seats from uh, Fort Myer to Dallas because the flight was full, and Michelle and I were seeing separately. I had an aisle seat, she had a middle seat, and we were in the same row but separated by the aisle, and then we just thought, okay, well, just sit next to me, and whoever's supposed to sit in the center can sit in that center and work out. And this family of four comes down, uh, father, husband, uh, brother, and then daughter, uh, sister, uh, wife. So three men, one w- woman. And they agree that we can do what we're doing. And the three men will sit here and the, the gal will sit next to Michelle on that row. And I'm like, okay, I prayed to be able to share with someone. And obviously the Lord wanted Michelle to do that. So I'm going to take a nap. I mean, deliverance. It was like kind of a blessing. And as I'm, I'm tired, I'm closing my eyes. I, I'm listening to the conversation between Michelle and this lovely young gal. She's uh, late 20s, I'm guessing. And she's, her husband's with her. He's in his late 20s. Um, they're, they're both attorneys. They, uh, uh, they, they were going back to their hometown. And I'll keep it private. But as Michelle's conversing, comes to realize that her mother had just died, had, had the COVID shot. And she had just died. And then the husband, her, her husband, who's in his late 20s, had had the two doses and it, it was rushed to emergency. He thought he was having a heart attack and they had to give him um, nitroglycerin. I don't know what it was. And, and she's, and they said that, you know, just get the third dose. That's what, and like, like, like another dose, like a third shot. I'm like, and, and, and she's just processing all this and she loves the Lord. She's just lost her mom. Her husband's almost died. She's a practicing attorney. She's seeing freedom. And her husband came from an Eastern Bloc country where his family was raised in communism, and he came to America for freedom. And, and all this is processing, and I'm, I'm, my wife is just navigating this so lovely and wonderfully and tenderly, and, and I'm kind of in and out and just mesmerized by it. And then Kelly Shackelford, you know, one of the attorneys, he's getting off, and we were thinking, we need to connect them and get these young attorneys fired up for liberty and freedom. And then uh, this person picks us up at the airport. We're driving back, and they said, you know, I took a... Uh, unofficial poll, a non-professional poll, just of my local friends, of all the folks who've received the vaccination. And I asked them, did you receive, this is his question, did you receive the vaccination because you believe in its health properties, or did you take the vaccination because you were required to by work, or you couldn't see your grandkids, or you weren't allowed to visit or travel? Or, And he said, 100% everyone I've asked has taken it because of 
uh, social constraints. None of them believe it. And, and, and interesting, it's like I think we're, we're approaching the 5,000 number for deaths from this vaccine. And it's more deaths from this vaccine than all vaccination deaths combined since 1986. And I saw the meme of the two rats. One rat saying, did you get the vaccine? The other rat said, I didn't know that it had finished human testing. Now, just let's pause for a moment. Pause for a moment. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I, I, you rise and fall before one master. That's the Lord. But we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it social pressure? With a virus that has a 99% survival rate? Plus? Or is it because we want people to like us and we want to remain employed. The president's now saying that you're going to need, you know, a COVID passport to fly or go on cruise ships. And I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking, well, what's happened? And the reason why I share all that is because the passage we're about to read I didn't know what to make of it when I got home last night. And we, we have the anchor reading where we're going through the Bible in two years. And, and the, the, for this week, the reading was out of John 18. And I, I read all of it. And this one really touched me. And I pray it ministers to you. And you'll see how it all ties in with the questions I'm asking. So would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, please? Don't worry, you won't be standing long. It's only three verses. We'll begin with verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then, P- then, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. That's just the passage we're going to look at. Let me pray. Lord, would you make sense of this for all the folks present? I thank you that you have a way of reaching us in our lowest moment when we feel the least effective We feel unworthy. You have this uncanny ability to make it all better. Lord, would you do that today for all who are in the hearing of my voice? Lord, would you reveal through the passage and others in your word that's alive and cause us to come alive to it? Lord, would you help us? Would you save us? Would you allow us to understand what true freedom and liberty is? That you're the author of it. Set us free, Lord, please. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat, please. I will remain standing. I, I was drawn to those three short verses in John 18, and I'll put it into context for you uh, momentarily, but suffice it to say that there were three words in the English that many of you know, um, a fire of coals, but it's only one word in the Greek, and it's an interesting Greek word in John 18 because that Greek word only exists one other place in the entirety of the 66 books of the Bible. It's only used twice, once in John 18 and the other in John 21. We translate it fire of coals, but it's a fascinating Greek word. And whenever you see that together, God's saying something, especially in the context of how he presents it. And you'll see it momentarily, and we'll get to it. And it'll all make sense, and it'll all tie in, but we're going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail that will bring us back, and it'll have a, a purpose, trust me. We'll begin with the question of, do you know who they are? First two services, no one had a clue. Some of you may have attended one of the services, and you're going to pretend like you know just because, but... The person, um, the person on the left is a guy named John Mitchell, and uh, he was orphaned at the age of six, and he had to go work in the coal mines uh, in the U.S. to support his family, and he worked there his whole life, 
And at the age of 15, he joined the Knights of Labor in 1885. So he worked in the coal mines as a child his whole life. And at the age of 15, he joined a a coal miners union. The lady on the right is a woman named Mary G. Harris Jones. Um, She was an Irish immigrant, and she was Irish-born, came to America. She was a school teacher and a dressmaker. She was married and had four kids, and in 1867, her husband and her only, her four children, all of her kids, died uh, of yellow fever. To kind of make her life settled in some capacity, she opened up a dress shop, and that was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. She was devastated. She was orphaned at a young age and then widowed, and tragedy seemed to follow her. Her brother had a great inspiration upon her life. Her, her brother was a Catholic priest in Ontario, Canada, and he was beloved and still is to this day. And by his inspiration of doing what's right and engaging in the community and standing for what is right, even in the midst of her heartache and sorrow, she knew what it was like to lose the things she loved the most, and she became the most dangerous woman in America. And that was the moniker that was given to her, the most dangerous woman in America. And that moniker was given to her in 1902 for her success in organizing the mine workers and their families against the mine owners. She called them her boys. And and this was a time of women's suffrage where they wanted to get women the vote, and women's suffrage didn't like her because as a Catholic woman, she didn't believe a woman should work. She should be at home with the kids. She, She... denounced the women's suffrage movement. Interesting gal. And she called the mine workers her boys, and she says, I'm, I have time, and I'm not afraid, and I'm willing to fight for them. She, she died at 100 years of age. Her name is Mother Jones. You've probably heard that for the publication, which is now left of center. No, it's like so left, it's fascistly right. I don't even want to add right to fascist. It's just, I don't know what to do there. But Mother Jones, have you ever heard the song? She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. Have you heard that? That's written about her. Mother Jones. When she comes around, all hell breaks loose. This woman is tough as nails. And uh, she took on the coal industry. Now what's fascinating is the world operated for thousands of years needing to be warm and they need fuel. And so the most readily available fuel is trees. And so they would, they would cut trees down. They'd take branches. They'd rub two sticks together. They'd create fire. All of a sudden, your culture would flourish because you had the power of fire. And then you'd build a temple to a fire god. And you'd worship the sun because there was warmth. Because warmth would allow people to live. And that's how it was. And, and they would burn wood. And the, the trains would operate in billowing smoke from wood. Yet they didn't realize that they were walking over sources of fuel under their feet that would burn at 800 degrees and with with such fervency and they were complete carbon and they would launch industry because you needed fire to be able to forge metal and societies and, and nations would succeed by their ability to manufacture weaponry. The first to be able to use coal were the English and the Romans wrote about it but, but this, this anthracite existed and people didn't know what to do with it and others learned how to harness its power. But it was the United States of America that realized this, this fuel source underneath their feet and they began to mine it in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and um, J.P. Morgan and Salmon P. Chase and, and the Vanderbilt, I mean, all of these titans of industry began to harvest this anthracite. And then industry exploded. They forged steel and made railroads from one coast to the other and north to south, east to west, and all points in between. They, they forged steel and weaponry and, and, 
at the turn of the century with Teddy Roosevelt president, they had the Great White Fleet and they were strengthening and stretching their, their force all around the world and titans of industry and wealth was exploding. And it was all fueled with anthracite. And these people were unbelievably wealthy. And the furnaces were burning. And in 1902, anthracite coal strike was the single most important incident in the labor movement in the United States. I'll explain to you momentarily why. Actually, I'll do it now. You're here. Today's Sunday. You have a day off. You probably had Saturday off. You have a five-day work week. You work eight hours a day. And if you're paid hourly, you get overtime. You have a 40-hour work week, and there's a minimum wage. That was all a result of the 1902 anthracite coal strike. The entire labor set up in America and what you enjoy as citizens is a result of the labors of the most dangerous woman in America, Mother Jones, and her cohort, John Mitchell. And those two fought tirelessly. Why did they fight? Because John Mitchell, like the kids here, grew up in the coal mines. You get the word anthrax from anthracite. It's a Greek word, anthracia. And, and from that, you get anthrax. Anthracia, anthrax, anthracite, all from that Greek word. And, and anthrax is because the, the anthracite had scarring in it because of the layers over time from the carbon that was pressed by past plant material. And they would harvest it. And, and anthrax leaves scarring, and so they... they, they describe the disease along the same lines as the Greek word itself for scarring. And that's where you get the word anthracia and anthracite. And these young children would labor in the mines and they would have 10, 12, 14 hour work days, seven days a week as orphans. That's the only thing that they would bring back to their families. They would die of black lung and they'd suffer. This was taken in 1901. The children would be missing fingers and they'd, they'd put them in the coal mines because it was easier to hit portions of the coal vein that taller men couldn't reach. And kids, they were all orphans and nobody cares about them anyways. And they were all immigrants. Many of them didn't even speak the language because they were from Eastern Bloc countries. And to organize them, who's going to help a kid? And so it was almost like Lord of the Flies. And they were abused and treacherously treated until one day a fearless woman by the name of Mother Jones comes along and she contends with these titans of industry. Now there's some folks here and you split the room. I mean, they <laughs> seems like everybody wants to split us nowadays, but we'll do it now. You got white collar, you got blue collar. You got some folks that don't have a collar at all, but you know. <laughs> Let me tell you how the way unions work. So the, the, the 1902 anthracite union strike occurred, and I'll explain it momentarily, but let me tell you why unions occurred. And, you're, and it'll tie in with scripture, be patient. And it'll make sense, all right? And anyone who says he doesn't teach the Bible, then go somewhere else. Oh, wait, you can't. <laughs> because those churches are closed. So hang in there, because you're learning about history, because it matters. So here's a quick lesson on unions. Front row, right here. You're a farmer. You're a baker. You buy his grain with the price the market will bear. With the profit you make, you buy more fields and hire more workers for your wheat farm. You take the grain and you bake the bread and you sell it for price the market will bear. And with the profit you make, you buy more ovens and hire more workers. For wealth to be created, two parties have to benefit, and you have to create a product that people want that makes their life easier. They don't need to bake the bread, you did it for them, and they'll pay a premium for that, and you make a profit, and everyone benefits. Now, here's where unions come from. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. You put up your capital, you put up your capital, you bought those ovens, you bought those fields, but you couldn't, you couldn't work them by yourself, so you brought in workers. 
And those workers look at you as you're starting to, to do really well because the bakery's doing well and they're buying your grain and your fields are, I mean, your bakeries are going great because you've got a wonderful recipe. And these folks are working overtime and they come to you as the owners and they're your workers and they say, you know what, we had a part in creating that wealth. And we want a larger portion of it because we're not spending a lot of time with our families and you're pushing us for 10 hours a day and you're going, well, that's mine. Great. And now you've got to fight on your hands because they walk away and you got nothing. And so you negotiate. You negotiate. And unions are good when they're in the private sector because they help create that wealth they can contend for it. Now, let me tell you what's not good. A lot of everybody in the room has a cell phone probably or a smartphone. Did anyone put a gun to your head and say, buy that? No. I don't know why no one answered me. <laughs> and now you're saying, you know what? That guy who invented the iPhone, he's too rich. He needs to give me some of that money. No, he doesn't. Well, he's just way too rich. You, well, that's because he created something you really want and you bought it. Yeah, but still. Yeah, but every day you access and and, and he... He put it together and he hired all the workers and they designed it and you've got apps and you've got direction and all that and of course he went off the rails. But anyways, you got all of that and, and you, didn't, you bought that willingly. Let me just tell you what that is. That's called covetousness. It's one of the 10 commandments, thou shalt not covet. Covet is I want what they have and I'll do whatever I have to take it. Envy is, you know, I wish I had what they had but it's motivating to work hard like they did to get what they have. Covet is, I want what they have and I'm gonna take it. That's dangerous. That's called socialism. Socialism only works until you run out of the other person's money. It's a violation of two of the 10 commandments. Yet we all think it's acceptable to weaponize government to take someone else's property. And here's how we do it. We've got a, a union happening on your farm and in your bakery, and you're working with them, and you're negotiating because you appreciate your workers, you want to care for them, like, like Hershey did with his chocolate factory workers. Hershey, Pennsylvania is beautiful. He took care of his workers. But let's go to a public union, a government union with government employees. This is an interesting one because in California in the last... At 10 years in California politics, $300 million has been spent on political campaigns, plus or minus. Two-thirds of that has been done by two entities, the CTA and the SEIU, California Teachers Association and the Service Employees International Union. Both government unions, and it's gone to one party. And now they have a supermajority in the House, the supermajority in the Assembly, or excuse me, the Senate and the Assembly, and they own the legislative or executive branch as well. They dominate. It's a one-party deal. And if you vote to recall, they want to dox you and find out if you sign that petition, then they're going to come after you. One-party system. And they've weaponized it. And here's how they weaponize it. And a lot of you may be upset with me. I, I, I don't lay awake worrying of who I'm going to offend. I just do what I'm told to do, and you guys sort it out. It's, I, I understand people have skin in the game, and they've got issues where they, they feel like they're going to lose something and all that. But I spoke at the council meeting. I was in Florida. I actually put my name in the docket as a public speaker, and this is all I stated. My comment was, a supervisor has infringed on our First Amendment and taken us to court and, and tweeted and made a mockery of us. And now that same super, uh, supervisor is going after another citizen in this county to devalue their property with an easement, and over here... They all, this, this supervisor sits on the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, and they want that to be open space. So devalue it, and then we get to gobble it up. That's weaponizing government. Look, I don't care what they put on that property, and I know you want open space and you don't want any building. I'm not contending with you. Deal with that later, but that's not the way you get the property. You don't use the government to be weaponized to steal someone. It's a violation of the, of the 15th Amendment. And the citizens have to fight back. Where are the Mother Joneses and the John Mitchells? Mother Jones looked at these children, missing fingers, black lung, endless hours, and she collects them in 1903 and she marches them to the door of Teddy Roosevelt's home. 
and the whole nation changes. Child labor laws and the Christian church backs it. And all of a sudden there's a resurgence of the understanding of how you're supposed to care for an employee. Christians should have already have known that. Hershey did. John Mitchell became notorious for contending for the rights of the mine workers. To be in labor activity was notoriously dangerous at the time. There had been, in what was called the Latimer Massacre, 19 miners were striking and they were shot and killed by police officers. And they were striking because 58 miners had died in the Twin Shaft disaster. And finally, everyone had just had enough. And they didn't care if they were going to get shot. They didn't care if they were going to lose their job. They didn't care if the titans of industry who controlled every vestige of government were going to make a mockery of them. They had had enough. And Mother Jones had already come to a place where I lost my husband. I lost my four kids. I was orphaned. I lost my family. I lost my dress shop. There's nothing they can take from me. I'm contending and defending because I don't want any more of these children being carted off into these mines and abused any longer. It's not the way you're supposed to operate. My brother who's a priest taught me that and that's all there is to it. And so the numbers swelled from 34,000 organized workers to over 300,000 and that was tough to do because the mines were the only place that immigrants could go and they had to collect their unionization based on everyone speaking a different language. But they all had in common that that was wrong. And why do I spend so much time explaining that to you? Well, that's, of course, how we got the eight-hour work week. Eight-hour day and the 40-hour work week, all because of a lump of coal, anthracite. Anthracite. That lump of coal changed America. And it's, it inspired Mother Jones and John Mitchell. Mother Jones died at 100 years of age, the most dangerous woman in America. She would rally people. She called all the mine workers her boys. And she said, no more children in the mines. She said what America was thinking, but she was willing to lose everything to do it because she'd already found out what it was like to lose everything to begin with. And the reason why I'm touched by it is because as I read the passage we just read in John 18, that's the beginning of a broken promise. You see, in Luke 22, Luke records Peter's interaction with Jesus. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will have denied me three times that you even know me. Peter's just like all of us. I remember when I first came to Christ, my heart was over, overwhelmed. And I, I, I just turned to the Lord and I said, God, I'll go anywhere and do anything for you. You've saved me. You've delivered me from from the slavery of sin, from the slave block of sin. You, you've cleansed me of my unrighteousness. You, you've, you, you've given me a new outlook on life. You've given me hope. You've written my, my name in the Lamb's book of life. You, Lord, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. I, 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 I give you my life. I'd go to prison. I'd even die for you, Lord. And you mean it when you say it. And then life happens. And you get a job. And you meet a girl. And you get married. And you have kids. And now you have assets. And you start watching TV and you look at your neighbors and their opinions matter. And you don't read your Bible as much as you used to. And that voice seems to be distant. And that commitment seems to be waning. And that promise seems to be a long forgotten memory. And then all of a sudden they start challenging you and enslaving you. And you find yourself in a place where you once were when you had met the Lord. And you find yourself, God, how did I get here again? I don't like my life. I'm a coward. I'm afraid. 
I'm ashamed. You say, well, that, that may be you, Pastor. It's not me. Okay. We're all cowards. Oh, no, I'm not. Okay. Peter's warming himself by a fire when he swore he'd go to jail and die for the Lord. He's warming himself by a fire when a kid comes up and says, you're one of them. And he says, I'm not. Children are looking at you. Things are caught, not taught. We're lining our children up for vaccinations when more kids have drowned in a bathtub than have died from COVID. And we're letting them inject our children. We're not even saying a word. Because do you know what they could do to us? Because Peter's warming himself next to a Roman soldier and all of the upper class. Do you know what havoc they could wreak on our lives? Do you understand the consequences if I'm to say that I'm a follower of him? And I'm not dumping on you. You can clear the room in this sermons for me. Please understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking an inventory. And I'm looking around at a nation that I was born in and my father fought for and I'm watching myself roll over while they trample my children's future and I'm silent. And I'm watching people out of one side of their mouth say they love the Lord and they love this country and out of the other side of their mouth they will compromise to whatever extent to protect their earthly possessions. And one after another, they fall like dominoes. But we all began like Peter. And the Lord said, no, it's going to take a nanosecond for you to come to the end of yourself and realize you can't keep that promise, Peter. And that's why this passage so ministered to me, because Simon followed the Lord at a distance. John was with him. John's the one writing it. John's the one who knows the gal on the inside and got the gatekeeper to let Peter in. And it was that servant girl who opened the door for Peter and she turned to him in verse 17. She says, aren't you also one of the man's disciples? Peter says, I am not. And the part that gets me is the servants and the officers who had made the fire of coal stood there. It was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. I underline fire of coals. It's that one word. It's called anth anthrakia. It was an anthracite fire. It burned hot. 1% of it was sulfur, so it had a very unique pungent aroma. And as he sits there and he's warming himself by that fire and he tells that 13-year-old girl, I am not one of his followers, he goes on further. He stood and he warmed himself by that fire and they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and he said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him who, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? I mean, I would know you. You cut off my relative's ear. Jesus picked it up and put it back on. You remember that? And it went back on. It was you, dude. And, and Peter, I mean, you, you know when you've lied and you've been, you've been caught. You're not even good at it anymore. You're like, no, no, it wasn't me. Oh, you've never had that problem. Okay. And, 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 and Peter compromises everything. He denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Matthew and Luke cover it, where at that moment, John doesn't do it. He, he's taking care of Peter. But Matthew and Luke point out that the minute the rooster crowed, the scripture says that Peter wept bitterly. And the word bitterly means of, of anguish, having lost your dearest loved one. As a, a sheriff's chaplain for Ventura, I've been with families when they've been notified of the death of a loved one, or they've had to examine the body. And I've, I've heard, it's otherworldly sounds. It's guttural. I, I, it, it's haunting. It's hard to get out of your mind. And that's, that's how hard that hit him. And by the way, he's warming himself. And he didn't forget a moment of that day. And then the second occurrence of that word, anthrakia, is found in John 21, the last chapter of the book of John. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John, who's writing about himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Let me just stop. Take a look at me, if you will. They've been fishing all night on the Sea of Galilee. Michelle and I were just in Naples. You can walk 300 yards out on the shore of Naples in the Gulf of Mexico, and you're still waist deep. There's no fishing there. 
I don't know where they get the grouper for those Florida grouper sandwiches, but it's not in the shallows. I didn't see anything. It's just all dead or just vacant. And, and this is the shallows of the Sea of Galilee. They were out deep. They had fished all night, caught nothing. They're coming in. And Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And they're in the shallows. And they're like, whatever. And they cast on the right side. And the, 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 the haul of fish was so much that the net was breaking. It's at that moment that John turns to Peter and says, in verse 7, it's the Lord. Now, don't forget, John outran Peter to the tomb. Because Peter's kind of heavy and out of shape. But he's strong, you'll see in a moment. And in this case, all three appearances following the resurrection of Christ, all three appearances, this will be the third, and Peter has been present for all three. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he'd removed it, and he jumped into the water, plunged. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish, then as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals, anthrakia, the second time ever in the Bible, nowhere appears again, anthrakia, and fish were laid on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Peter's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He puts his clothes on, then jumps in the water. <laughs> I was a swimmer. You don't want to wear clothes when you're competing. He wanted to get there before the boat, and you know the sleeves that he's swimming with, catching that water? Yeah. He's not very smart. When he gets to shore, all of his clothes are wet. And now he's got to go warm himself by the fire. Oh, it's not a wood fire. It's not even a charcoal fire. It's an anthracia, an anthracite fire. Very unique fuel. Very pungent aroma. Jesus says, we're going to need some more fish because he's hesitant probably to come near the Lord. So Peter takes, and, and the scripture says it was 153 fish that they caught. And not just fish. They weren't like little sun trout or perch. It says they were big fish. So that, that, that's a 300-pound net. And Peter pulls it in by himself. This guy was a beast. He's like, for my Catholic brothers and sisters, he's still the Pope, but just... Really strong guy. And he, he brings it over. And now he's got to bring the fish and he's in the presence of the Lord. What's the point? Why would God do this insanity? The, the same word, anthracia, is a root word for that bacterial infection I talked about, anthrax. And it means anthracite. And the reason why it's only found twice in the, in, the, in the Bible is because it's a rare fuel. Anthracite coal. I love what one author says. He says, how often does God do this where he takes the very place, location, thing, relationship, addiction, sin, fear, and transform it into an instrument of God's healing? I say this because what I just read to you in that passage that ends at verse 10 Verses 11 through 14, Peter drags this to shore. He brings the fish to the Lord, and when he approaches that, and when they had finished eating breakfast, and Peter was by this fire, he is so aware of his failure. And at that moment, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, Lord, Lord you know all things. You know that I love you. Then he said to him, feed my sheep. And most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus said, Peter, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, Lord, what about that guy? I'm going to be told, I'm going to be taken where I don't want to go, and I'm going to be killed in a way I don't want to die. What about that guy? 
The guy who beat me to the tomb, the guy who's writing about me, the one you love. The one on your breast when you said, when are you betray me? Is it me, Jesus? Lord, what about this guy? Jesus said to Peter, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is about you and me, Peter. It's not about everything else. It's you and me. That was profound. Because the first time when Peter said, Lord, I will go to prison and die for you, it was all about Peter, what I will do. And now it's all about what the Lord will do. Why is it significant? And why that whole stupid historical study on anthracite? Because the element that changed the nation changed Peter. That's a nose. This is a Scottish nose. McCoy. You know why Scottish noses are big? Because air is free. That's right. Now breathe deep, everyone. They want to muzzle you. You tell them, shut it. But the olfactory sense is the number one sense for memory recollection. This is from Rutgers University. A scent is a chemical particle that floats in through the nose and into the brain's olfactory bulbs, where the sensation is the first process into a form that's readable by the brain. Brain cells then carry that information to the tiny area of the brain called the amygdala, amygdala, thank you, where emotions are processed, and then to the adjoining hippocampus, where learning and memory formation take place. Sense are the only sensation that travels such a direct path to the emotional and memory centers of the brain. All other senses first travel to the brain region called the thalamus, which acts like a switchboard relaying information about the things we see, hear, or feel to the rest of the brain, said John McGann, an associate professor in the psychology department of Rutgers University in New Jersey. But sense bypassed the thalamus and reached the amygdala and the hippocampus in a synapse or two, he said. That results in an intimate connection between emotions, memory, and smell, sense. So you have a very rare fuel that saved a nation, transformed child labor laws and labor unions and established the working man's week. And you have that same rare fuel, especially for then, burning in the presence of a disciple who swore to the Lord he would go to jail and die. And like his predecessor Paul would say, those things I want to do, I don't do those. Those things I don't want to do, those I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Peter's at a place where he said, you know, Lord, I tried. And all I can think about is how I failed. And as he's smelling that and the memory's coming back, and and Jesus is messing with him in a good way. He denied him three times. He's asking him in three times. He's smelling it. The memory's already there. Do we need to do this? This is your third appearance. I get it. You're going to ask me three times. I get it. You're asking me if I love you. You, knew, you, you, you know all things. You, you knew I loved you when I said that I would go to prison and I'd die for you. But the problem is I love myself and this stupid life more than I love you. I've fallen in love with the things of this world and I've fallen in love with this, this idea of safety. I'm afraid to be free. I'm afraid to contend for truth. And Jesus, you said you're the truth. I'd, I'd lie to children. I wouldn't contend for their generation. I know what they're doing's wrong, but I'm unwilling to stand. I just wanted to go away, and I, I want to get my life back. As we're encroaching into hyperinflation, as they're printing money, we're silent. And we all come to the conclusion as we watch churches close and businesses shuttered and children 
injected. And we just say, Lord, I'm a coward. My ancestors fought for freedom. And my contribution to freedom is to stay home and to receive DoorDash. They're going to cancel me if I speak. And I watch people who say out of one side of their mouth they love freedom, and the minute they have a chance to stand on this defense, they cower. And I'm speaking about me. My wife, the, the guy came down and said, uh, I've, been, I've been told that you are unwilling to pull up your mask. And she's ready to go to town. I'm like, honey, no, you can't do that because then we won't have a way to fly. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm sorry, you're married to a coward. Now, granted, you know, all things are profitable, not all things are permissible. I, I don't have a private plane. I, I can't get to places to speak if they, they, they shut me down, but I can do what she's doing. I can't say, look, I'll wear this, but do you understand how stupid this is? You are a Nazi walking up and down the aisles, and the only reason why you're doing it is because another Nazi told you to do the same thing. And a Nazi is a fascist, and a fascist, you can give up any definition, it's real simple, it's a bully. And you're a bully, and you know it doesn't work, and just tell them, tell everybody. But they're not going to like me. You're dead. You've been crucified. Christ lives in you. Peter understood that. And the Lord said, listen, Peter, you can't do this on your own. You've already proven that. But you can do it with me in you. And what's fascinating, and I close with this, is Peter was so moved by the restoration, Jesus didn't contend, uh, con- condemn him. He just said, get back to work. And all of you like me, if you failed and, and, and you're a coward or a cowardice, that's behind you. And you're gonna tell the Lord, Lord, I can't. Do you realize what I've already done? And God will look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. I don't know what you're talking about. Forget what's behind, Paul would say. Forgetting what is behind, strive for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. He took hold of you for liberty and freedom. Forget all of the condemnation of the voice of the enemy who wants to remind you of your past. You just remind him of his future and stand up. You're a child of the king. You're more than a conqueror. You are free. No tyrant is going to enslave you. Including you. You will not be a tyrant of your life and enslave yourself as Peter did. You will not cower in fear. You die to yourself. You live to Christ. The word Christian, there's only room in your life for one Christ, one Jesus, and that's him, not you. You can't will yourself beyond ability. You come to a place where you struggle, and all of us have that place, and that's where we say, Lord, help me. Peter found that strength that day in the restoration on the shores of Galilee as his olfactory senses cleansed his past and the memory and God infused it and used it as a gift and a tool to make him an instrument of fearlessness and freedom. And you find it in Acts chapter 2 where Peter is standing with the 11 in front of thousands and he raises his voice. He says, men of Judea who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Heed my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2. And he quotes it to all the Jewish folks. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy and will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness. The moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he says in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, which just means do a 180. It just means change direction. He said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? The strength to accomplish the impossible. Folks, we have a supernatural task on our hands. It's gonna require supernatural strength. 
And I don't care if you're Peter and you can lift 300 pounds of fish. You'll still fold at the condescending voice of a child. But when Peter stated that, Joel went on, and this is what we close with. And I want you all to know this who've been ashamed. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Forget what's behind. You're a new creature in Christ. This is what the Lord says to you. I will restore the years of locusts have eaten, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts, the grand army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. It's time to live. It's time to be free. Forget what's behind, strive for what is ahead. You're a child of the king, the king who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. Sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without his full knowledge. What are you afraid of? Because the spirit of the Lord coming upon you, as Joel says, he doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. You may be able to lift 300 pounds of fish, you may be smart, but there's gonna come a place where you'll compromise if it's in your own strength. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Everyone practice these three words when we come up against tyranny and we are going to stand and these three words are real simple. Lord, help me. And then do it. Just go for it. And they'll fold like a cheap suit. One day they'll call you Mother Jones. And you'll die at 100. And they'll build monuments to you. But if you do it for that purpose, you're in trouble. There's no glory in this. Mother Jones did it because she knew it was right. Our children need freedom. We need to contend against this evil. And God has chosen this time to appoint you and me. So let's go get it done. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's, let's remain standing in the presence of the God we're clapping for and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence, Lord. We stand to honor you and to say thank you. Lord, your word is true and your spirit is present. We thank you that you've, been, you've moved us, Lord. Your word spoke the heavens into existence and your word has empowered us this day. Just simply truth. And truth doesn't return void. And so by your spirit, would you strengthen us? Would you cause us to be instruments of the most high God? That we would not waver in fear, but we would stand in the strength of the spirit of the living God as Joel had declared. And there's no shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we forget what's behind. We strive for what is ahead. All of us have compromised. We've all failed. That's, that's humanity. Welcome to the human race. But we want to set the captives free and we know that you're the truth and you've come to set us free and we'll know that truth and that truth will set us free and so Lord we're all in and we thank you we love you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen alright let's worship the Lord God bless you guys